Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1169. Recorded Sunday, July 12th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's Carl and Richard. We're here again. Indeed. Yeah. It's summertime. I like summertime. Another geek out. Another day, another geek out. This one, uh, you spent uh, a good amount of time on and found there's just no end to how much we can talk about. (laughs) Well, it's such a good science time right now. I mean, I was very tempted to just do a show on Pluto. Yeah, of course, right? Because everybody's so stoked about it right now. But, you know, most of the the guys at NASA are saying the right things when they say, hey, you know what? The work is just beginning. Right. Well, this is the first shot. This is the first time we've ever really looked at it. Yep, we've gotten this close to it, and uh, although we collected a lot of data leading up, I mean, it's been in flight for uh, 10 years, nine-something years, they did a bunch of Hubble shots and stuff because they were worried about what they were going to find there that might damage the spacecraft. They ended up finding more moons. Blue's got five moons, for crying out loud. Yeah, and there's some activity on some of these things. Yeah, and then, I mean, that was known from the early images that Pluto changes. I mean, we've only known about Pluto since 1930, so what is that, 65 years? Yep. Its orbit, one year, is 243 years. Mm. How much can we possibly know? We've only seen a quarter of its orbit so right, far. Right, right. But already things are changing. Anyway, that is not the show today. No, no, it's not. <laughs> but it's very exciting. Yeah. And like all shows, we start with Better Know Framework. Well, Richard, I went out and I went looking for some AI stuff. Interestingly, artificial intelligence or, you know, as much as we could be doing uh, in the entertainment uh, sphere of personal computers sort yeah. of sucked me in to, to computing a long, long time ago. Um, the story goes, I was, I was at, the, I think it was the Boston Children's Museum the first time I saw a computer. And it was just a screen and a keyboard, you know, and and it was saying, what is your name? And I typed in my name, Santa Claus. And it said, you're, you're not Santa Claus. Come on. What's your name? And I was like, <laughs> what? How do and you? And he had you right there. Yeah. I'm like, how did, what? You know, and then I put in the Easter Bunny, you know, and it was like, come on, be serious here. What's your name? And I typed it in. <laughs> Carl's like, hey, Carl, how are you, Carl? I'm like, this thing knows my name. How does it do that? You know, how does it? <laughs> So I was completely blown away. And I was a kid of all of 10 years old. But, then, right. you know, artificial intelligence kind of sucked me in. So I, I went looking for the state of chatbots, you know? Right, yeah. Because chatbots are what everybody uses to pass the Turing test, you know? Yeah. If uh, you can have a quasi-conversation with a computer and not realize that it's a computer, and I guess there are parameters and things that Alan Turing set up, but uh, then then it's considered to be intelligent. 
And uh, I'm not very impressed with the state of John. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to personalityforge.com, this is just the first one I landed on. But it looks like there hasn't been anything updated in a while. Maybe there has, and I just didn't find it. But anyway, yeah. I went to their chat bot finder and, and to their award winners, right? The award-winning chat bots. I found the tested and proven. These bots have won awards in chat bot competitions, right? And first thing I asked the chat bot, what do you know about Miles Davis? And it said, I am so glad to meet you, Davis. <laughs> without a comma <laughs> so not only is it in misinterpreting my question it's not using proper grammar and punctuation yep uh and then at one point another bot you know we were talking how are you fine making small talk and 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 the bot said i am fine and i said i bet you are and it said gambling will get your ass in trouble <laughs> it's like eh, right there okay you failed I so, you know, just simple uh, figures of speech. Hey, we do hard, we have a hard enough time as humans understanding each other's, you know, different countries and, you know, uh, take on figures of speech and, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. We have a hard enough time as people. It's going to take a while before these things can get that smart. Well, and, and I mean, there's obviously some really smart chatbots out there. IBM's Watson has a version that's pretty impressive, but. Yeah. Is still, you know, they, and it, this is part of this whole conversation is what's commercially available, what's possible in computing, what's reasonable in computing. There's a lot of different elements to all of that. But no. It's nice to see. I, I see what you mean. I'm just looking around the site here. The, no, there's really been no updates since 2012. 2012. Yeah. That's yeah, the so latest sort of one I stopped. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Could find though. That's very funny. Yeah. Well, is somebody talking to us, Richard? Um, I grabbed a comment off of show 998, and that's the one we did on nuclear weapons. And right. um, there's a reason I chose from this area, uh, which we'll get to later in the show. Uh, this comment's from David Driver, and this is more than a year ago, where he said, While thanks for discussing this with a fact-based approach and taking the time to place these weapons in their proper historical context, one of the things that scares me the most about the history of nuclear testing is the way people in control had no clue about the long-term effects of the devices, but they were willing to proceed with the testing. Mm. Not to go too far off topic, but I get the same feeling with the people who are injecting GMOs into our ecology, meaning genetically modified organisms. Perhaps you could give some coverage to that topic sometime. Mm -hmm. Funny you should ask. Mm. I've been actually working on a bunch of notes in this space, but uh, we'll see where it falls on the rankings as to when I should actually... To talk about it. Uh, you could dovetail it into the conversation about IP rights gone wild and discuss the lawsuits pending from cross-pollination. And just, David, for your own edification, for the most part, all those cross-pollination lawsuits have gone away because it was bad press, a bad idea. You know, they could have... This was a story of where Monsanto sued a farmer because the farmer had GMO crops on there, which looked like a, they literally just flew across the road from a, another field that was planting them. Yeah. And it's like, you know, maybe the farmer should be suing you for contaminating his field with your modified crops. Right, so, yeah, sure. Anyway, yeah, that that conversation definitely evolved further. And uh it's worth we'll get there. You know, the the duel this time for which one to do which you had to do next was artificial intelligence versus quantum computing. Right. Which I actually was tormented on the order of that because one sort of influences the other too. Yeah. But uh, GMO is a little further down the stack and certainly an interesting topic. 
And uh, thanks so much for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. If you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or via any of the social media sites that we hang out on. We post all our shows to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we could read that one and send you a mug from there. So do we start this story with uh, stories? I'm, um, some of the authors and sci-fi. Science fiction. Yeah. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dave. Yeah, I'm sorry, Dave. Uh, cybernetic systems, Skynet. Yeah, is that why people are so freaked out about AI is because of Hollywood? Well, it doesn't help, but <laughs> I look at guys like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk and Bill Gates coming out concerned about AI yeah. as guys that I think are a little less susceptible to cultural uh, convention saying, hey, you know, this is a genie that we could get out of a bottle and never put back in. Well, you know, arguably, the internet is a genie that was let out of the bottle and now yes. can't be put back in. Well, and and the nuclear weapons as yeah, well. Yeah, you know, the, like these were all That's, things that were made for a variety of reasons, and once you've got them, you can't unget them. Yeah, it's it's a valid concern, but it's also one of the reasons we probably should pursue it mm-hmm. because it's in, the, the some of this stuff is rather inevitable. Uh, and mm. you know, the, the, <laughs> my way of tackling artificial intelligence anytime something talks to me about this is to substitute the word intelligence with dumbness. Yeah. Artificial dumbness. Right. Because, but <laughs> it is stupidity it, would be a more politically correct word. But as funny as that might be, it's also a way of thinking, what are we actually saying here? Mm-hmm. Right. Are we talking about something important that actually has to do with the ability to, to, have cognition is more than availability of information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where we get, we really sort of fall down. Um, if you go all the way back to the first sort of conversations around this, it starts at the beginning of computing. There's a guy named John McCarthy. He's the guy who invented the language Lisp. So you already know that deep down he was evil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he actually in because Lisp was one, one of the languages even back then they were talking about this is the language that artificial intelligence will be created in. yeah i remember that because it has that sort of recursive nature to it yeah. uh but he's what guy quoted as saying as soon as it works nobody calls it artificial intelligence anymore right they just call it intelligence yeah all of the things that we have called artificial intelligence over the decades once they work, we call them voice recognition, image yeah. recognition. Or Siri. <laughs> yeah, natural language processing. Right, like these yeah, are yeah. all technologies that were once covered in the uh, artificial intelligence mantle that then as they start to actually do stuff, you know, becomes less and less artificial intelligence. And so we AI tends to break down into a few categories. And one of them, then this is the one that actually exists, is artificial narrow intelligence or weak AI. The tendency to be a specialist in a particular area. Like an expert system. Yeah. Well, think um, Deep Blue, right? Yep. The best chess player in the world. Yep. And that was a pursuit by IBM for a long time to finally build a chess player that could beat the, the finest grandmaster in the world. And there's a bunch of other games. Apparently, there's an AI that plays backgammon unbelievably well like it's mm. just no fun at all right mm-hmm. like you, they're always going to win um and, and narrow intelligence is a really interesting thing because you can apply to a lot of stuff there's an argument that there's ai in anti-lock breaks yeah well i mean if you think of it it's a decision tree and it's uh, uh the the term expert system was 
essentially something that was a decision tree that was programmed by an expert right. to ask questions and lead to a an answer based on the answers to the question. But now you get into that natural language processing side of you, you're never going to give exactly the answer that fits perfectly with the tree, right? The, it is the areas of gray that where the interesting things come out. Right. And that's where you have the absolute necessity. I mean, think about the brain. The brain is so plastic that when somebody tells you, oh, that's not correct, you know, it adjusts its pathways and thinking so that so that it can incorporate this new fact or this new information or branch, if you will. And uh, that's precisely what an AI has to do in order to grow, in order to learn. Don't be so certain. Really? Has to is a pretty strong word. But you're you're definitely going down a path that I think is important here. Because now when you you start talking about AGI, artificial general intelligence, or strong AI, Mm. that's the, can I make myself a human-capable brain? Mm -hmm. And it follows pretty quickly by ASI, artificial superior intelligence, because most of the techniques that we're looking at for how we would actually make something like that involve self-learning and self-enhancement so that pretty quickly you're not going to be as intelligent as a human. You're going to be way more That's pretty much what I'm talking about. Self, yeah. Self-modification, self-enhancement, you know. Absolutely. And that, and that is the presumption that it, that's going to be necessary. But it is a presumption, so it's interesting to question. That. Okay. But let's um back up a couple of notches here because – there are a whole ton. I mean, you go all the way back to the 50s with Lisp. There's all the whole thing about neural networks, right? Which have been around for decades. I have a buddy, same age as me, graduated from, from high school, same time as I did, who actually has his degree with honors mm. in neural networking. And neural networks have found their way into stuff that you use all the time, the, the Surface tablet. Sure. And the tablet PC before that, all that handwriting recognition uses neural nets. Although, I mean, the funny thing when it comes to neural nets is often once we get it to a, a working set, mm. we, what, yeah. what neural nets don't really have is relearning. Right. You're, you're absolutely right about that. And it, this is the thing that you come up with, uh, stock market prediction systems, yep. right? They're great as long as the system is following along with the data. You know, it's in the same pattern of data that we're, yeah. we're used to. As soon as the, the vector changes and the pattern changes, uh, it's actually they go off the rails. Goes off the rails. Yeah. Well, and and you know, so for those who never really dealt with neural networks, a neural network is simply a set of algorithms that emulate neurons, and they are generally organized into layers. And the basic behavior they're trying to emulate is that each cell, each neuron, has a threshold value as to whether or not it would propagate to the next cell. Mm. And so they, you start off with sort of a blank slate of a multiple layers of neurons here, and then you feed it data. And it's supposed to produce results. And then you train it on a set of data. And this is the big problem that happens with neural networks is you train it heavily on a set of data till it passes that set of data. And the rest of the world doesn't look like that set of data. Isn't that kind of the way learning is, though? I mean, uh, you you know, if you think about the things that you've learned, you're constantly having to relearn things. And sometimes those things you need to relearn are are closer to the metal than than other periphery things. And right away you're pushing on one of the issues we run into when we talk about artificial intelligence, which is we're trying to understand our own brains and we don't quite understand them yet. Yeah. You know, there's different aspects of the way the brain behaves. There, we're looking at, and you've seen me good at this, we're looking at the way the brain does image recognition and realizing it's not a conscious process. Right. It's too fast. Yep. 
right? Like people get, you've, you've seen me play this trick where I'm answering questions from a trivia question and I answer them so quickly. Like, how did you even read that? Yeah. And it's because I didn't actually, it's not yeah. a conscious process for me anymore. I have a recall system so fast that present me with a set of words. It's immediately recalled. And folks, Richard's not bragging when he says that. I mean, he's really quite amazing when it comes to recall. It has pluses and minuses, but you know, it's just that sort of thing. So yeah. there's a whole bunch of aspects of the brain that baffle us. If we, one of the parts in this whole discussion, you can't talk about AGI without talking about a guy named Ray Kurzweil. Sure. And I don't want to do a show on the singularity yet. Okay. Well, but, you've mentioned what it is, so you got to yeah, define it. Yeah, we mentioned it. it a few times. And, <laughs> you know, this is this idea that – and Kurtzwheel is sort of like the grand bishop of this whole idea. And he's currently being paid a substantial amount of money by Google to pursue it. Yeah. Um, that humanity's acceleration of technology is coming to a point where the technology will accelerate on its own faster than we can even perceive it. And that's this, I, he wasn't the one who coined the term singularity. It's actually a guy named Werner Vinge, um, who's an interesting cat all by himself. That's you like a black hole where you get so much gravity in one spot that nothing can escape it. We reach a point in technology where it just sort of transcends everything we understand. Yeah. And a lot of what, um, Kurtzwheel and, and others in this space talk about to, to make this true is Moore's Law. So how convenient. We did that show already. How convenient. Yeah. And there's been some interesting news around right after I did that show. Yeah. You know, there's been stuff going on in this space. Yeah. And, and Intel in particular. Well, Intel just recently, like within the past few days of us recording this, uh, before we recorded this, talked about not being ready to go to 10 nanometer. So, yep. I mean, I told a lot of stories in the Moore's Law Show about the effort they went to with 22 nanometer. When they get to 22 nanometer, the the individual transistors were so small that the current design of the transistor didn't work. They actually had to change the shape of the transistor. And uh, that carried them, that made 22 nanometer work, which, you know, they're supposed to be on the TikTok cycle every 18 months. They really, you know, do the next thing, next thing, next thing. Yep. And 22 nanometer was late by almost a year. Mm -hmm. And now... So 22's carried them to 14, and now they're working on 10 and realized, hey, we're not going to make 10 on time. We're having similar kinds of problems. And part of what we talked about in the Moore's Law show was they were going to change a bunch of stuff to make 10 work. They were talking about quantum well. Yeah. They were talking about not using silicon dioxides, but going over into indium gallium arsenides, like different, enough different materials that they're just saying, okay, we're... We've, we're not going to be ready on time for the next tick, which is when they reduce size again. So we're going to do an additional talk cycle where they're going to do a third release in the 14 nanometer design. Yeah. Totally fair. I get it. I'm annoyed by the press going Moore's law is dead yep. and TikTok is over. It's like, you know, it is getting harder and it is going slower because. And, and where this is important when we talk about artificial intelligence is Kurt's wheels projections on us having artificial intelligence by 2040 was predicated on Moore's law being consistent. Yeah. And he wasn't just talking about artificial intelligence existing in, or generalized intelligence existing in 2040, but that it being inexpensive, that anybody would have it. Mm -hmm. But here we are in 2015 already banging into Moore's law challenges that are going to perhaps slow down the cadence and that supports this idea of maybe we won't get there, that the kind of computing power we need is not going to be there. But that's not true either. So let's talk about the computing power of the human brain. Sure. So two to three kilos, depending on how big your head is. 
Some of us have bigger heads than others. Ah. Estimated compute is about 100 billion neurons in the average brain. Okay. Some better used than others. I'll trust that number coming from you. 100 billion, yes. Uh, runs at about 200 hertz, in a.k.a. each neuron can fire as rapidly as 200 times in a second. Huh. Okay. Seems pretty slow. Yeah, compared to computers, but still, you try and do 200 things in a second of anything oh, else. no, that's... no, yeah, I, I see that. Yeah. Uh, it's also, it's the other piece that's interesting is his communication speed's only about 120 meters per second. Hmm. So there's one discussion around human brains that says the human brain cannot get much larger because it'll start having communication issues within itself from the distances within it. Hmm. So that's an interesting aspect of it. That is an it. interesting aspect. And if you were going to convert it into com more computering terms, it runs at about 20 petaflops. Hmm. So that's uh, 20 uh, quadrillion Floating point operations per second, right? Mega, mega is millions, uh, giga is billions, tera is trillions, petas uh, are, are quadrillions, okay? Yep. Now, given those dimensions, how powerful are computers? The number one supercomputer in the world right now is owned by the Chinese. It's the Tian A2, and it runs at 34 petaflops. Hmm. It costs $400 million to build, it's the size of an office building, and runs on 24 megawatts of power, <laughs> but it is faster in terms of the flop count than a human brain. Okay. So, you know, that's in the ballpark. All right. And that's interesting because, again, awful lot of curse wheels, projections, so forth. We're talking about $1,000. Uh, artificial intelligence computers. And I don't think we're going to wait that long. I think we'll start experimenting with top-tier computers in this space, and arguably we should experiment with these ideas uh, while they are rare and expensive so that we sort of have a little more control over them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're going to model... A so let's say we've got the hardware. The hardware's there, right? The, the, right now, given... If you're a, if you're a Larry Page, is one of your tech billionaires... And you've decided that you want an artificial intelligence computer. And I would argue Google really wants an artificial computer. I think they do. Intelligence. Sure. I mean, what is Google but an artificial intelligence? It's just a narrow intelligence, <laughs> it right? It is a narrow intelligence. Yeah. yeah because you type in the, your search string and it gives back answers. Yep. Right? And again, they are funding the Singularity uh, uh, Network and so forth. They've got a project called Deep Dream. Okay. Does that make you nervous? Uh, yeah. It's a little freaky. Uh, tell me. It's an, it is a, an interesting neural network. It's a large neural network where they have trained it with a hundred, uh, 1.2 million images. And every one of these images was marked up. It had tagging basically to say, this is a dog. This is a bird. This is a building, you know, and so on. Wow. And so now they ran it through this neural network. Now that's not that weird, right? Because you think about it, Google definitely wants a technology. We all want a technology that showed an image and it could tell you what's on it. Yeah, What's in and, this image? That's and, a really hard problem. And they have a lot of images at Google. They sure do. <laughs> and you think about how, think about flashcarding images to your babies. Yeah. Right? Dog and so forth. Like, this is something we still don't do well right. with technology. Right. Right? So here's the clever part about Deep Dream, the thing that got me really excited about this. Because neural nets have sort of run their course with the overtraining and so forth. Sure. And, I mean, 1.2 million images sounds like a lot. But it's not, it's right? It's not really. You yeah. really want billions of images. The real problem is the cataloging takes so much time. Somebody's got to do that. Yeah. So they created this mode in the Deep Dream system called 
daydreaming. And here's how it works. You, after it's been all trained, they show it an image that doesn't have something on it. Like they show it an image of the sky and say, find the dog. Ah. And it asks it to start marking up the image, outlining where it sees the dog. Interesting. <laughs> All right. So this is the daydreaming phase, like looking into clouds yeah. and, and finding the shapes. Right. And actually, if you start searching around, you'll find a bunch of the images that this daydreaming is made, where it actually sort of took the line, the lines of somebody's foot and saw that's a dog nose and enhanced the, the, the look of the dog onto it. Wow. That's a very human thing it's projecting yeah yeah it's almost creativity almost you know what i mean sure it's really interesting so but useful things they were learning they searched they they asked it to find a dumbbell and as it started to draw what it saw as dumbbells it kept showing them with hand, disembodied hands attached to them huh. and, and the reason was virtually every image you'll ever have a dumbbell is That's somebody hands. using it right Right. So it sort of speaks to if you really want to build a system that recognizes images, you have to deal with those kinds of vagaries. Sure. So that part of this was them just trying to build a better image recognition system. But it, the fact that we anthropomorphically project, yes. right? our tendency to perceive things as human, we anthropomorphically project onto the system, this idea of daydreaming, this idea of creativity, just because it took that neural network training and enhanced images to see where it might have fit certain patterns. Mm. Wow. It, Fascinating. It works, it's really, to me, it, I just get the quivers out of that because it's like, oh, you know, right. this is all of those <laughs> tendencies that humans have to create those things. What if creativity was nothing more than strange image mapping? Yeah. Well, I mean, in that case, you know, finding, finding something in that isn't there in a right. Rorschach test kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, you know, we, and we, every time you dive deeply into AGI in this whole conversation, you end up in philosophy sooner or later. Mm. Right. And I don't want to spend a lot of time there. Not that I mind it, but it's like, I don't think people want that part. That not the biggest part of the conversation. That's what comments are for. Yeah. And, and, but in, and it could easily spin into another show, but there is that whole aspect of, you know, what is it to be conscious? Cause right. it's a big argument. Sure. There. Shooting for a human, modeling a human brain, that's a pretty hard thing to do because now you've got the computing power. Now you need to actually write the software. And there's a couple of approaches to this. I mean, one would be that you, you invent something completely new. You come up with your own way of thinking and so forth. Uh, and, and your own kind of cognition. Mm. Uh, and the other one is we model a human brain. Mm hmm. Right. And this is goes back. If you go back into the singularity conversation in Kurtzwheel and so forth, Kurtzwheel is really talking about immortality in the sense that what if I could make a perfect copy of all of the neurons in your brain and all of their behaviors in detail and put it inside of a machine? Yeah. Would you wake up inside that? He wants machine? to put his consciousness inside of a computer. Yeah, well, he, what he wants to do is live forever. Right. And, and he's not alone. You know, I think I got to think that most tech billionaires are thinking in terms of I want to live forever, which, you know, there's a whole show to be done there on longevity and the research is being done in that space. But one of the ways you could go about that is to get rid of the biology that decays. Yeah. So there are a few uh, computers out there that are modeled on the brain, aren't there? Yeah, quite a number of them. They, and they're trying different ways. But here's an interesting, have you ever heard of the Open Worm Project? Tell me. Do tell. <laughs> the openworm.org is a group of scientists who have built a software emulator for a flatworm brain. 
Oh yeah, I have I have heard of this. I didn't know it was called open worm, but yes. So I they, did know they modeled only, the flatworm brain, yeah. There's only 302 neurons in a flatworm brain. Mm. And so they're actually able to, with the sensors we have today, study them in such detail that they have been able to model every single one of those neurons almost perfectly. I love the tagline. Building the first digital life form. Open well, source. <laughs> and they've done it. It's an open source life form. It runs. Yeah. They've, they, they have implanted that set of digital neurons, taken a computer program running that neurons, wired the inputs to a remote control car, the inputs and the outputs to it. So the, the muscles that would normally be flexing to move the worm are now wheels on the, on the car. Mm. And there are sensors for ability to see light and sense touch and so forth. And without any programming other than just that neuron set, it quickly learned to drive the car around and avoid things. That is so wild. So, haven't we invented artificial intelligence? Uh, you know, I knew you were going to tell me this. Well, that's the question, right? How intelligent do you need to be? What do you mean when you say intelligence mm-hmm. exactly? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the weird part. How, in a, one would argue that today's computers, not even talking about the supercomputers, but regular computers are running in the realm, you know, a petaflop right. is, I mean, too much computing power for us, but a gigaflop's not. And the argument is the mouse brain runs in gigaflop ranges. Yeah. And you think about everything that a mouse can do. Right. And they, you're talking about the horsepower that's in your phone. Yeah. <laughs> so you have an inexpensive, what was once a supercomputer today, that given the right programming could do all of the simulated behaviors of a mouse. How intelligent is that? Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Ah, uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to take my brain, stick it in some dough, and make some stupid cookies. <laughs> Red Fox! <laughs> Gorilla cookies. <laughs> Press your face in the dough and make a gorilla cookie. <laughs> oh, he was something else. He was amazing. Actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with Dev Express UI control and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today. Stupid cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid cookies. <laughs> that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application, a data-centric analytics dashboard, or the next artificial intelligence, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Awesome, dudes. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Simon Weber from the UK. Congratulations, Simon. Yep. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Simon Weber. I don't think your intelligence is artificial at all. Uh, not at all, sir. And uh, Simon just won the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress, a big pile of awesome from them. If you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, Answer a few questions and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. So let me ask you about if 300 neurons is enough to drive a toy car around and avoid things. And and for you to immediately anthropomorphize it as life. For us to, yeah, for us to see that as life. Yep. And your your point here is that with the with the power that's in our iPhones or whatever or on our yep. desks, 
we essentially can we have enough to run a mouse brain. Yep. So that, you know, this is essentially Ray Kurzweil's idea that given enough computing power, um, we will bypass the computing power of the human brain. We'll we'll exceed it. That's what I mean, yeah. 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 Well, and this is where, you know, this is where we get into philosophy. This is idea of emergent intelligence, right? Yeah. That we put together 302 neurons wired the same way as a, a biological model, a flatworm, and it had an emergent intelligence that was able to move around and avoid things and so on. Is consciousness emerging? Because that's only the only point where we start freaking out, right? Like yeah. the, the scenario that the Werner Vinges and everyone else paint about how you end up with Skynet is not that you set out to build a military robot that would run the whole world and oops, I did this wrong, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. It's more, you know, the, the scenario that's fun is, okay, I have this self-learning intelligence that enhances itself and I give it a mission. And that mission is you know, something simple. Like I want to find rare guitars, right? Right, or I just want to find guitars. Get me some good guitars. So the idea is, if you have enough narrow intelligences put together in the same system, perhaps now you have a general intelligence. That's, I mean, that's the idea of the emergence. But what the fear here is, you would expect if you built a a, a general intelligence to go do a task for you, like get me guitars, mm. it would go to eBay, yeah, and buy you them, yeah. right? You wouldn't expect it for it to hire a couple of hitmen to kill uh, a the guys in a music store and steal all the guitars, right? You know, or well, to or start ordering unless it was programmed to do so. In which case, it would be the programmers that. But were that's the whole point: is the with an artificial intelligence, we're not programming it to do anything. We're programming it to solve problems and to learn on its own, right? And and now you get into that genie effect of you can never make a perfect wish, right? Well, that. You know, the ultimate manifestation is it realizes the best way to make guitars is to kill all the humans. Right, yeah. Right? That's the runaway intelligence. Before we get to um, to that, I want to uh, bring you to Radio Lab, which is one of our favorite podcasts. Love, love, love it. Uh, if you go to tinyurl.com slash rl for Radio Lab Emergence, or just Google Bing or Bingle Radio Lab Emergence, they did a show on this phenomenon um, you know, what happens when there's no leader, starlings, bees, and ants manage just fine. In fact, they form staggeringly complicated societies, all without a Toscanini to conduct them into harmony. So they told a story on this show, and it's amazing, and I, I wish we could just make you listen to it. But right. anyway, um, what there, it was talking about this uh, scientist who was in, I believe it was Thailand, but it was someplace in Asia, and noticed along this river that fireflies started synchronizing their flashing for you know and they were they were not synchronized and then they all settled into these trees and then a group of them started flashing together and that group just grew and grew and grew and went all the way down the river until for miles you just saw you know flash one you know just one flash and it was fairly random in terms of the pattern but they all just started to synchronize themselves right what you know that that's amazing yeah and it's well just the school of fish and their ability to move together or a flock of birds that sort of emergent collective intelligence is, yeah it's spooky although admittedly they don't look at it as intelligence that's us right 
right? We're projecting that that seems intelligence only, and one would argue only because it's hard for us to do, or we don't understand how it works. Yeah. Right. That's, um, you know, you remember IBM Deep Blue, which eventually evolved in this thing called Watson, which, you know, cleaned everybody's clock in jeopardy a few years ago. Sure. Yeah. I remember that. In fact, the guy who it unseated was very disillusioned about it. Hey, so was Kasparov when Deep Blue won too, right? Yeah. But, and, and the system that they used there wasn't connected to the internet. It had four terabytes of storage. It had, which basically meant it was able to hold a copy of Wikipedia. Yeah. It was a natural language interface so that it could understand uh, what you were saying, and they could quickly draw some conclusions from that. It was remarkably intelligent. Mm. There's two things I've read that Watson's doing since then. The big project has been uh, managing cancers. Wow. So there's a system, because, it, because it's totally up to date, you know, they're able to feed it new research so quickly, it's getting really good. They're, they're using this at Sloan Kettering, which is one of the top cancer centers in the world. Yeah. To, uh, to manage certain kinds of cancers like lung cancer because of the broad spectrum of things. Its recommendations are really powerful. Hmm. Um, the other one, which is just recently, is cooking. Interesting. IBMChefWatson.com. You could sign up for it if you want. You basically give it a list of ingredients and it makes suggestions for recipes. And it has taken on recipes. They did this at South by Southwest this year. It reinvented poutine. Ha! No kidding. Which I... As a Canadian, take very personally. Yeah. So, and the poutine it made was a thing called Peruvian potato poutine. So, obviously still French fries, but... Purple potatoes. Traditional traditional poutine is French fries with uh, a gravy, typically chicken gravy, and cheese curds. Hmm. This has tomatoes, cauliflower, cumin, and bacon in it, along with a few other ingredients. So, wait a minute. Do you just... What do you do? You tell it what you're favorite dishes are you just say make me a dish and then out of the blue it just puts together ingredients what is so it you do? have a learning system here that has learned with its work with the culinary institute how different flavors work together okay. and it's been producing recipes nobody's ever seen before that every time people make them for the most part they go this is amazingly good wow wow is it a general intelligence huh. no not really it's still sort of specialized yeah, but insanely specialized. useful it's creative. Huh. Russian celery parsley bread lemon juice sandwich. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. This has got tri-tip. Oh, nice. Combine tri-tip and curry brine in a large resealable plastic bag. Seal and turn to coat. Chill at least four hours. Prepare grill for medium high. Combine celery, sweet potato, buttermilk, lemon juice. Ajwan? Ajwain? And one tea- tablespoon brown mustard in a medium bowl. Season with salt and pepper and toss to combine. Set slaw aside. I suppose there's like a uh, cord savory cabbage slaw or something. Yeah. Grill tri-tip. Brush bread on both sides with oil. Grill about two minutes per side. Spread with brown mustard. Build sandwiches with bread. Tri-tip slaw, savory cabbage, and parsley. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? Crazy. I would never think about that. Nope. And that's, you know, one of the things we get into this, but it doesn't actually imply intelligence per se. No, no. It's sort of uh, using rules that are gleaned from other successful projects and applied to with uh, with new ingredients. Right. New combinations. And that is creative. 
and you still get back to why would we, given how useful that is, isn't this what we want from com- from the more advanced computing we're building? Yeah, I mean, ability it, to make suggestions that extend our capabilities that make us utilize things more effectively. Absolutely. And if you think, you know, okay, it came up with an interesting sandwich, that's right. one thing, but it could also come up with a solution to a standoff or a negotiation. Yep. Um, yeah. Solve a uh, solve a, com- uh, a technological problem. Right? Solve. Right. How about the grand unified theory? Like, if, could you feed it enough information? Could you feed this system enough information that it would think of combinations we haven't thought of yeah. without ever actually needing a consciousness? Yeah. Right. That, you know, we're talking about two different things here. We're sure. talking about thinking speed. How quickly can you come up with a conclusion? Thinking diversity, you know, the, the range of data you work on, as opposed to thinking quality. You know, it doesn't matter how fast that flatworm brain runs. Speed is not the issue here, right? So what if you could come, and I'm just thinking out loud here, what if you could combine these systems that are sort of specialized? Because if you think of the brain, we have different specializations of parts of the brain, the amygdala and, yep. you know, the frontal cortex and prefrontal cortex and and all these things do different things. But what if you could, like a network, like an internet, synchronize and utilize the outputs of one of these systems to be the inputs of another system and uh, and then, you know, depending on what was called for, you know, if it's recipes, then you, you use uh, Chef IBM and, uh, you know, if it's um, uh, anything else that's more specialized, you know, what is this image, you use another thing. To, it, it seems like that's the way to create some sort of general uh, intelligent, something that we would call an intelligent assistant. Yeah. Well, and again, you get back to what did you want? Why, why did you even want a consciousness? And do you even know what it is? Well, you know, um, quite frankly, I would love to have some sort of thing that has the promise of Siri, you know, just like, tell me something real about this or that, or what right. are my options here, or, you know, or, or just a, a better way to access the information that is on the internet, sort out the crap information from the real stuff, find the relevant things that you're looking for, do some research, and come up with a solution sure. in a second or two. Yeah, and and you don't need an, an, a consciousness to do that. Here's another way of thinking about it. How would you know if the computer was conscious. Well, you know, Alan Turing said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we but they, we test. already have chatbots. Yeah. You know, that they confound that already. Right. But, and, it, and now you get into the philosophical piece of how do you know you're conscious? Yeah, that is philosophy. You're right. And you're, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, as we get deeper into the brain, we learn more things that are getting more confusing. There's an argument right now that the consciousness is not an electrochemical process. Right. Cause in the end, the brain is supposed to be this electrochemical machine. There's a, there's an idea that it's actually a quantum computer, that there's a quantum effect going on, a, an entanglement between these neurons that fire in a sort of symmetry that exceeds what electrochemistry could possibly do. Well, now aren't you talking about sort of parapsychology and getting into the fields of the soul? And other yep. things that we haven't been able to scientifically prove the existence of, but everybody sort of has this feeling of connection. Yeah, we want to believe that there's more to this because, you know, the sad part would be we are just an electrochemical process. Yeah. That consciousness is simply a computing problem. Right. 
but we don't know how to build or program the consciousness. So we're, we're looking at it two ways. Either we put enough stuff together, as you were describing, that it emerges. Yeah. Or that we emulate a brain well enough yeah. that the conscious piece is just naturally in there. You know, the thing, the test that I think of is, you know, let's look at the code. If the code says, if you get this, res- if you get this question, respond with this answer. You know what I mean? Right. If it's a simple logic tree, okay, that's not really conscious. You're still thinking in terms of code. I am. Where's I the am. Code but, but, in but, the- but what if what if the code was? you know, more like a neural net, which is weighing inputs and then actually composing words uh, and and sentences that may or may not l- make sense at first, but we learn to speak its language, etc. You know, now that's that sort of has a little bit of um, more of a consciousness wow factor for me. Well, this is where you get back to what Google's doing with Deep Dream. They're building this neural network where there is no code, right? You can't see it. It is a composite of many elements. Right. But having it do the de-dreaming effect and modify this picture so you can see how it thinks. Now that I really like. Yeah. You know, back at one of the, one of the applications or programs, I suppose we called them back in the day that got me even more interested in programming was Eliza. Yep. And Eliza was initially written by somebody who just wanted to make a mockery of artificial intelligence. And he wanted to show how we are so easily fooled by yep. by what is a simple program. We could be fooled by what is a simple program. Basically, it, it uh, and I've talked about it a million times. I even rewrote it in VB once. Sure. It, it's, it's essentially something that takes a sentence that you type and looks for keywords. And based on those keywords acts as a Rogerian psychotherapist, so which uh, answers every question with another question. Right. So you end up having this infinite uh, and quite tiring conversation. <laughs> but How at does least that make you feel. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, I'm mad at my sister. Tell me more about your family. You know, <laughs> things like this. And, and you yep. think, oh, my God, this thing is amazing. But it's just picking up on keywords and then, you know, um, uh, remapping verb tense and things like that to come up with uh, other questions. But but it's interesting that when I was a kid, that was really interesting to me, and I thought, wow, that's artificial intelligence. But yep. but it was actually written to demonstrate how easily we are fooled by just good code. How we anthropomorphize. Yeah, we we project exactly, yeah. and and it tells you so much. Not to get down to into philosophy again. But it tells you a lot about humans. Yes. So by, and not just about how our brains work. That's not what I'm talking about. But how, like you said, how we project, how we anthropomorphize. We've, mm-hmm. we looked up at the stars and we saw the characters, uh, you know, uh, playing out, uh, these elaborate dramas and, uh, pushed forms onto them that don't exist, but they exist in our minds. And leverage that to provide us with a more tolerable existence. Absolutely. That there are gods, that there is a plan. Right. That there is a way forward that, that, uh, you know, there's a bigger thing than you. Because all, all the alternative is just too hard to bear. Well, I, it, it's part of it. And, but there's also a, a, you know, core gestalt. We see this in flow and everything else that things are bigger than you. Yeah. And that we do belong to it, that every drop in the ocean is an ocean. Right. And we are drops too. Right. 
So that then, and then, you know, if you want to, you know, we're firmly in philosophy here about <laughs> what is it to be conscious yeah. is to be aware, even if you cannot articulate yeah. the larger whole. Yeah. And that's cool and fine. It's also not a piece of software I actually need for anything. Well, you know, here's an, here's a little story that I heard from Joseph Campbell who says, you know, uh, he's got a, a porch and there's a flower out on his porch and every morning the flower sort of bends toward the sun. You know, mm-hmm. heliotropism, I guess it's yep. called. Yeah. Exactly and when the sun it moves, it, it sort of turns toward follows it. it, follows it. And, you know, he says, you can't deny that that thing has a consciousness, right? But <laughs> it, it's, <laughs> you know, it's not, uh, it's not what you might consider an intelligence. No. Nope. Uh, but certainly it knows. Oh, what he said was, you can't tell me that thing doesn't know where the sun is. Right. It knows where the sun is. Yeah. And so and, that, and is that really intelligence per se? Well, you know, it's intelligent for its purpose, which is to live. Yeah. Yeah. And, they, and now you get to a very interesting part of where we get in trouble with building an AGI. Right. Deep-seated in humanity, and again, this is pretty close to philosophy, is this, I'm, I want to reproduce, I want to yeah. pr- propagate my genes. Right. And that gives us the whole elements of sex and, and pretty much all of these things, our goal of immortality, immortality. passing along our genes. Exactly. Odds are that's not going to be a driving force inside of a computer. Right. So you're going to look at it very differently yeah. uh, as a computer. They're fundamentally aliens because they do not have those biological drives that, for better or worse, shape everything we do. Yeah. yeah. And if... Computers run at computer speeds and use learning algorithms to constantly self-improve themselves. Then you have this sort of logarithmic effect. There will never be, if we're going to create a human consciousness with a human intelligence inside of a computer, it will never be that for more than a fraction of a second. Mm. It'll be massively more intelligent almost immediately. There'll be very little time. Mm. And that's considered the threat because suddenly when you have that kind of intelligence and a consciousness... It has the same relationship to us as we have to the flatworm, mm. mm-hmm. you know. And uh, there's a great quote from a guy named Charles Rubin, who's a, a poli sci guy, who says, "Any sufficiently advanced benevolence may be indistinguishable from malevolence." <laughs> That's very good. And, and, a and he's, scary, of course, but... playing off Arthur C. Clarke. Right. Yeah. But you know where you know where we've done that as regular people, taking your dog to the vet. Huh. Right. Yeah. The dog didn't enjoy himself. Yeah. Right? It was it was extremely benevolent, but it seemed malevolent. Yeah. Try to cut a dog's toenails sometime. Right. Not for even if the dog's in pain because their, their claws are growing in. Yeah. They still don't want you to cut them. Right. Right? Like that's that's the sort of things we're dealing with. At the same time, would a superintelligence automatically be dangerous to humans? Would it naturally fall on the benevolent side, right? You know, why do we carry spiders outside? Well, and this is, you know, where we get into programming. And if you think of it, programmers, uh, the programmers of these intelligences are more or less responsible for their development, their growth, and essentially their moral decision making. And there are organizations in existence today focused on that particular problem. So there's a fellow uh, named Eliza Yadowski, who is all about this thing called friendly AI, mm. right? And it, and the way he describes it is in an awesome phrase, coherent extrapolated volition. That's so scientific. 
Yes. But what it really comes down to, what would our choices and actions be collectively? If we knew more about each other and more about our needs and wants, we were able to think faster and spend more time thinking on it, and we could be the people we wish to be and be closer together. Because that's actually the promise of this kind of technology would be to make a better manifestation of that. Mm -hmm. And if you could incorporate that into the core of any synthetic consciousness, you would be putting them on the right path. Right. And so this is being worked on. The issue is this. Does this have sufficient priority? Like there, there are people out there, and I think it's one of the reasons the conversation keeps coming up in the gestalt mm. of technology today mm-hmm. is we only have so much time before this is in the hands of everybody because right. of, because computing continues to advance. Maybe Moore's Law does run out. Maybe we never get here. But current trajectories, it might we might we, we are very likely to get here. And this takes me back to why I read a comment from the Nuclear Weapons Show. Why did humans build those weapons? What was the core driving force behind guys like Oppenheimer? Mm-hmm. It was fear, right? During the Manhattan Project, they were afraid that Germany was building it. And if the Germans had it, they would use it. Yeah. So we're better that we have it so that we can defend against it. And that morphed into the Cold War, where the Russians had it, you know, and ultimately we never used them again so far, knock on wood, one would render, we've already rendered them obsolete because we had that balance. If we don't go after this while it's difficult to do, wait until it is trivial to do, it will get out of control. Right. That the time to work on this, we have the horsepower computing wise now. Yeah. Now is the time to start building these things and getting them right. That the best chance for us to, to deal with AGIs run amok is to have AGIs already in existence that aren't running amok. Right. Yeah. And we're going to do what Einstein said was impossible, right? Einstein said, we will, the, the technology we have today will create problems we cannot solve with technology today. We'll need the next generation technology to do that. Mm. And now we're in this balance of we have to take advantage of the gap between hardware and software. Because as the hardware gets cheaper, that you're going to be, this is going to be more and more possible, right? The software always lags behind. If we push to get the software done right, when the hardware is cheap, the software will already be in place to keep this in a reasonable balance. Mm. And it's right now. It's today. This is actually a problem for this immediate generation. Something to think about, Richard. Absolutely. Man, I can't thank you enough for doing all this research. It's great. I'm glad you like it, buddy. I have a great time doing it. And I hope uh, everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Please write your comments. Let us know what you think. We can't make these without you. Stay positive. That's the way that you influence the world. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com 
for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...